0: Good morning. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. A number of you have asked if Brian Morrison is pursuing pastoral ministry, and if that's why we took him, them, with us to the pastor's co- or conference. Uh, it is not, I don't think, right? Uh, it would be news to me if he was, but... Um, no, we just like to take folks with us every now and then to uh, just share in relationship with them. So... <laughs> It was a joy to do so. Now we return to Matthew 7 and continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, When you're at a pastor's conference or when pastors are together, uh, there are uh, regular questions we always ask each other. One of them, you can't get far into a conversation with pastors talking uh, without them asking, what are you preaching through? And so again and again, I was asked the question, what are you preaching through? And this is, I would always say, Matthew's Gospel. And they'd say, oh, where are you at? in And I'd say the Sermon on the Mount. And they'd say, oh, wow, that's what a great passage you they always that's like what you always oh what a great passage like there's not a good passage in scripture really but everybody says that what a great passage and yeah like so how long have you been through the Sermon on the Mount and I think they're normally expecting you know like a couple months maybe since the summer so they were always surprised when I said we've been in it since February I said yes February and it has been so rich Going through the Sermon on the Mount has been a wonderful study for us, looking at the Beatitudes together, uh, looking at Jesus' teachings on the law, studying the Lord's Prayer, studying about how we relate to one another. God has met us in the Sermon on the Mount, and I have loved this study with you. Uh, But, as we know, all good things must come to an end. And so we are drawing towards the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in verse 12 of our passage today, Matthew 7, verse 12, uh, Jesus actually concludes the main body of this sermon. And then in verses 13 and 14, we'll look at as well, he begins what is an extended conclusion. Uh, Jesus has a very long conclusion to this sermon where he calls us to put into practice what he's been preaching. So, in many ways, today's sermon is the beginning of the end. The sermon title for today is, The Way of Love is Life. The Way of Love is Life. And we are studying Matthew 7, verses 12 through 14. I would invite you to follow along as I read God's holy and authoritative word. So... Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. May God now bless both the preaching and the believing of his word. In one of my favorite books on marriage, uh, written by uh, my former pastor, Dave Harvey, the book is called, or no, it's called, um, When Sinners Say I Do, he tells the following story, a true story uh, about a couple he knew. Gordon and Emma met at a church function. She was an admirable young woman, and he was a fairly new pastor. Their wedding day seemed to be the launch of a godly couple into the promise of fruitful ministry in the decades ahead. But just a few days into their honeymoon, all of Emma's dreams for her life were crushed. Gordon made it clear that he did not love Emma, and that he had married her simply, Because there were more opportunities for married pastors than single ones. For 40 years, through the birth of six children, and all the while functioning as a pastor, Gordon made no meaningful attempt to kindle love for his wife. Freely admitting to an adulterous affair that began after the birth of their fourth child, Gordon insisted he must remain married. Divorce would derail his pastoral career. Marriage for Emma became a life of secret shame. She was relegated to sharing a room with their two daughters, while her husband stayed in a separate room and their four sons in another This is a part of Emma and Gordon's story, and I'll share more about it later in the message. It's a bit of an extreme example of someone, Emma, namely, having to live with someone who is very difficult to love. And while the case may be extreme, the situation may be extreme, in many ways we can all relate to Emma. There are difficult people in our lives to love. And while we may not be married to a Gordon, that difficult person at times is our spouse. They can be difficult to love. So too can be our children. So too can be our parents. So too can be our boss, our coworker, our neighbor. The Lord puts difficult people in our lives to love. And the Lord would teach us how to love them. So as we work our way through the sermon today, I would encourage you to already be thinking of someone, get someone in your head that you find difficult to love right now. In this season of life, in this week of your life, in this day of your life, who has been someone that has been difficult for you to love? For the Lord would have you learn much about how to love them. We're going to look at our passage today under two points, two headings. The first is the way of love, which we will spend the majority of our time on. And then the second will be the way of life. And by the end, I hope to bring them together. So we begin with the way of love outlined in verse 12 for us. This is, as many of us know it, the golden rule. And this golden rule is so well known that it's so familiar to us that I fear we may not understand it as well as we think we might. So we want to give a exhaustive would be too strong of a word. We want to give a thorough study of this, an in-depth study of this verse. So let's begin with its first word, The sentence begins with so, or you might translate it therefore, which gets our attention a little bit more. This so, or therefore, is critical here because it connects this verse back up to Jesus' teaching of chapter seven. His whole judge not command, which we looked at, has in view people who are different than us and people who are difficult for us. What are we supposed to do with them? What are we supposed to do with the friend that has betrayed us or the friend who won't talk to us? What are we supposed to do about the coworker who slanders us? What are we supposed to do with the spouse that will not listen to us or with the child who is running the wrong direction? Jesus has been answering that question. How do you love different and difficult people? He's been telling us about this in chapter 7, and he has, just to review for a minute, he's basically given us four answers in this chapter. Uh, Two negative and two positive of things we can do, ways we can uh, relate to people who are different and difficult. First, in the negative, we do not judge them. That's verses 1 through 5. Second, we do not force our convictions upon them. That's verse 6. Then in the positive, we do pray for them, verses 7 through 11. And finally, our verse today, verse 12, we do for them as we wish they would do for us. That's the flow of this passage, that's how it all hangs together. So you've got someone that's difficult to love, you've got someone that's having a hard time loving. Okay, well I'm not supposed to judge them, I need to be stricter with myself, okay. Yeah, I'm not supposed to force things upon them, okay. I need to pray for them, all right, I'm praying for them but they're still in my life. What do I do with them? How do I relate to them? How do I connect with them? I'm supposed to be doing something good and gracious towards them. I think God wants wants me to pursue them somehow. What do I do? Well, Jesus wants to teach you, treat them the way that you would want to be treated. John Stott calls this a remarkably flexible ethical principle. Remarkably flexible, ethical principle. Bishop J.C. Ryle saying something similar uh, comments, this is a golden rule indeed. It settles a hundred difficult points, which in a world like this are uh, continually arising between man and man. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. It sweeps the whole debatable ground with one mighty principle. How many intricate questions would be decided at once if this rule were honestly used? Verse 12 is a golden rule indeed. Mr. Bishop's right. This one rule settles a hundred difficult points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules in our conduct with one another. Here is one grand rule to rule them all, as some might say. Notice the scope of this rule as well. The ESV translates this, whatever you wish, or other translations say, in everything, or I like this, in all things whatsoever. The Greek word is panta, which really puts its arms around all the various scenarios which we can imagine. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he is heading us off at the pass because this is what we do with a passage like this. We say, yeah, yeah, I understand it. Sounds like a good principle. Sounds like the world would be better. But you don't know what my spouse did to me. You don't know how my friend treated me. You don't know how long I've had to live with this. And Jesus is saying, in everything, what so ever. Here Jesus is heading us off at the pass. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on this passage, says that verse 12 is a limitless exhortation. New Testament scholar Grant Osborne calls it a universal demand. Jesus understands all our situations. And still he says, here is a rule without limits. Here is a demand, universal in its application. In fact, it's so comprehensive that he can say in the second half of verse 12, this is the law. And the prophets. Which is to say, whoever does for others what they wish others would do for them, that person is fulfilling all the law and the prophets. This is the key that unlocks all of the Old Testament social ethics. In fact, this so that begins. Matthew 7, verse 12 here, this first word, this so or the therefore that we're looking at, it not only connects this passage back up into chapter seven, the theme Jesus has been working on with our relationship with people that are different and difficult, it also functions to connect us all the way back to chapter five, verse 17, and the beginning of Jesus' message, the main body of it, when he states, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, same phrase, I have not come to abolish the them, but to fulfill them. So this is the bookends of Jesus' main sermon, 517 and 712. They book in the main body of Jesus' sermon. And the fulfillment of the law can be summed up like this. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is how the whole law thinks, because this is how love thinks. Now, a lot has been made about... The positive way Jesus states verse 12. Um, He states his rule in a positive form. And that's significant because its negative form appears widely in other religions' philosophies. So Confucius, who was several hundred years before Jesus, is credited with having said, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. And so, other philosophers, Stoic philosophers, had almost identical sayings. Other religions, you see it. Interestingly, uh, there's a famous Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, who was in around 20 BC. He was challenged by a proselyte, would be proselyte, to teach him the whole law while standing on one leg. So, now you test the teacher to see if they really know their stuff. See if you can sum up the whole Old Testament for me while standing on one leg. Some of you are saying, I wish Jace would preach a message while standing on one leg. But I have both feet on the ground, friends. Rabbi Hillel, Hillel um, he took up the challenge. His challenge. His rival, Rabbi Shammai, did not. He, he was either unable or unwilling to answer the question, and so he drove the inquirer away. But Rabbi Hillel accepted the challenge, presumably on one leg. He said this, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is only commentary. That was a good answer. But not quite right. It could be improved upon a little bit. At first blush, it seems essentially the same as what Jesus is saying here, but our Lord, as best we can tell, was the first in history to formulate this claim in a positive way. And the difference is profound if we tease this out. So worked out in life, the negative form of this teaching looks like this. If you don't enjoy being hit over the head, then don't hit others over the head, right? If you don't like people lying to you, then don't lie to others. If you don't enjoy being gossiped about, then don't gossip about others. If you don't prefer to be robbed, then don't rob rob others. Good, this side of the room's got it, fantastic. This side, eh, still working. This is how a lot of us think about the golden rule. But this is not what Jesus teaches here. This is not what Jesus is teaching here. He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. He formulates it in the positive, so this works out differently. It's like this, if you like being encouraged, then encourage others. If you like people being patient with you, even when you sin, then be patient with others, even when they sin. If you want people to really listen to you, then make the effort to really listen to them. If you like people thinking charitably about you when you say things, then think charitably about others when they are saying things. If you're grateful when people overlook your sins, then gratefully overlook other people's sins. If you wish people would make you a meal when you are sick, then make others a meal when they are sick. Do you hear the difference? The negative form is always less demanding. It forbids actions, You don't want to be robbed, so don't rob. But it does not prescribe actions. The negative form sets limits, but the positive form is limitless. In his commentary on this passage, D.A. Carson observes, Here there is no permission to withdraw into a world where I offend no one, but accomplish no positive good either. Friends, Jesus does not want to give us an excuse to withdraw from people who are different than us or difficult for us. He wants us to go and do positive good for them. He wants us to go and be the salt and the light of the world. He wants us to go and do good for everyone, including those different and difficult for us. This is the way of love. This is the way. If you've seen The Mandalorian, this is the way. This is the way. And yet, for as demanding as all that is, it still does not get to the bottom of the golden rule. It still doesn't get down to the bottom of what Jesus is really calling us to it here. The, the golden rule even demands more from us. John Piper helped me see this in a, in a message he preached on, on this, uh, this, this uh, passage. It can't just be that what would I want someone to do for me That's not enough. It has to be, what would I want someone to do for me if I were in their situation? This is important because otherwise, we might reason out love from a selfish perspective. It would be like a husband thinking, Well, how can I love my wife for her birthday? Let me think about this. Uh, Well, what would I want my wife to get me for my birthday? A new shotgun. Great, I'll buy her a new shotgun. There's a couple of you ladies who are wanting the new shotgun, but I think most of you got the point, right? Like, there's a way where you reason it out selfishly from your vantage point instead of from their vantage point. But love gets into their vantage point. Jesus isn't teaching us to think love out from a selfish perspective. He's teaching us to think unselfishly. Love causes us to serve others, Galatians 5.13. Love causes us to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interest of others, Philippians 2.4. Love compels us to lay down our life for our friends, John 15.13. And this is what the gospel teaches us. This is what the gospel is. It's God selflessly giving his son That selfless love compelled him to give Jesus, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. What world? This world of rebelling image bearers. For God so loved rebels and fools and sinners and idolaters that he gave his only son, he gave him freely, he gave him generously, but he gave him to suffer and to die therein bear the penalty for our sins that whosoever, Jew or Gentile, young or old, hardened criminal. Or harmless child, whosoever believes in him should not perish in eternal judgment but have everlasting life. The whole gospel is one incarnating in the midst of our needs and loving and serving and giving his life away. Friends, real Christ-like love is selfless. And so to apply the golden rule, we have to try to get into the life of the person we are trying to love. We have to see things from their perspective. So consider this. A guy comes home late from work and he finds his wife upset with him. Applying the golden rule selfishly, this husband may try to think this thing through. Okay, well, how do I love my wife in this situation? How do I serve her, you know? Well, what would I like? Oh, I would really like it after my long, hard day if my wife said, Honey, go put your feet up, and I'll make you your favorite dinner. I'll grill out steaks tonight, dear. And so the husband may think, Well, that's what I'll do for my wife. Is that what will serve her? Maybe. But maybe what would serve her is a good hard frank talk about why he keeps prioritizing his job over his family. Or maybe what would serve her is him not making dinner but him taking the kids. Or maybe what would serve her is him just hearing about her day. You see, love draws us into a relationship with the other person. So we find out what their life is like, what their pressures are, what their temptations are. Jesus is calling us to take up the other person's perspective by putting ourselves in their shoes and considering what would I want if I were in their shoes in their pressures, with their needs. President John F. Kennedy actually gave a great example of how we should apply this. Uh, He did this in 1963. He had demanded that the Alabama National Guard admit two qualified black students to the University of Alabama. And in his speech later that day, President Kennedy pleaded with every American to, quote, stop and examine his conscience about this and other related incidents. And then look how he, t- he does this. He says, if an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who will represent him, if, in short, he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? The heart of the question, Kennedy said, is whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. JFK was helping us to apply the golden rule He was calling white Americans to imagine life in our country from the perspective of someone with darker skin. This is what John Piper says of the Golden Rule is needed in in applying the Golden Rule. He calls it imaginative acts of empathy. Imaginative acts of empathy. We have to imagine what it's like from their perspective, from their their pressures. What are they experiencing? What are their temptations? What are they contemplating? What are they feeling? Love draws us into that relationship with them who are different and difficult for us to love. Even if it's only an imaginative relationship, we try to put ourselves in their shoes. There is an incarnational aspect to love. It gets in somebody else's head and it gets inside their heart to try and feel what they are feeling and see life from their perspective and then from that vantage point as a Bible-saturated Christian inside their head and heart, seeing things as they do, standing in their shoes, then we ask ourselves, if I were in this situation, knowing all that I know about God and his grace, what would I want others to do for me? And whatever you come up with from all of that work, that's what you are called to do. That's the action that love would take. Love doesn't just feel for other peoples. Love acts on behalf of other people. So right there in the middle of verse 12, Jesus says, do also to them. Do it, do it. It's in the present tense. Literally he's saying, you be doing to them. Be doing it, get on it, get to work. Love takes action. Jesus won't let us withdraw. Jesus won't let us just feel sympathy. Jesus want us to act out our love, which leads us then to a connection I need to make to verses 13 and 14. So point number two this morning is the way of life, the way of life. Look again with me at verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Ask yourself this morning what is the logical connection between these verses and verse 12 that we just studied? What's the connection between verses 12, the golden rule, and these two verses in verse 13 and 14? Or is there a connection? Or is Jesus just making a hard turn to his conclusion now? Earlier this week, I sat down to study this passage, and I I read these three verses, which I had assigned myself a year ago when I made out this reading schedule, or study schedule. So I read these three verses, and I just the immediate thought was, why in the world did I give myself these three verses together? Why would I have done that? These don't connect. These are two different sermons. Good thing I'm a lead pastor. I'll just redo it and do verse 12 this week and push this, this series back a little bit. And so I threw myself into verse 12 and I began to study and I began to study what all Jesus is calling us to it. And then the more I studied, the more I realized there is a connection to verse 13 and 14. This is the connection I see. The way of love is hard so hard. Loving people who are different and difficult is hard. It's hard to love a boss that treats you harshly. It's hard to love a kid who spurns your love. It's hard to love people who are politically different than you are in their outlooks. Loving people different and difficult is difficult and different for us. And Jesus has a lot to teach us about loving others. Can I just say two here? A bit of a pastoral aside about where it's difficult to love other people. I think most of us, the application begins right in our own homes, right? This is the place to start, and then we work out from there. Although you may have other people in mind as well. But can I just say that a place I see it apparently difficult for us to love people sometimes is on social media, I'm not on social media much. I don't have a particular post in mind right now. If you're thinking, oh crap, he saw what I posted. Um, yes, I did. No, I didn't. Um, but the Lord did. And I, the few times, the sometimes I get on, it looks like we struggle loving people who are different and difficult on social media. I've seen uh, the darker side of Facebook and Twitter uh, touch our church where there are quick takes and uncharitable judgments and fear-mongering and arrogant declarations and virtue signaling and corrosive speech. And the Lord would have us learn much about loving people who are different and difficult. Loving others requires us, he's been teaching us, to examine ourselves more stringently than we do other people. Verses one through five again of chapter seven. Love teaches us to be slow to speak to someone who is not open to what we have to say. Verse six. Verses seven through 11 teach us to pray for people. And verse 12 Calls us to engage in imaginative acts of empathy. Which means love takes time to reflect and imagine other people's positions and stresses and situations and convictions and temptations and to really try to get ourselves into their shoes and imagine the best way we can treat them from there. Love like that is so incredibly demanding. It's so hard. It takes so much time and energy and faith. Love like that takes a lot out of us, which is why I believe Jesus exhorts us the way he does in verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, the gate of love. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate of love is narrow, and its way is hard. But the way of love leads to life, and those who find it are few." Verses 13 and 14 are usually couched as salvation verses. You know, the way to Christ is narrow and hard. Many are the way, few are those who find it. That's how I've always heard. I've never heard it preached connected to verse 12. But here it is, right here. The narrow gate and hard way Jesus is calling us to is not explicitly salvation, first and foremost. It's Applying everything he has just taught in the Sermon on the Mount, which can then be summed up in verse 12 as doing for others what we would have them do for us. For this is the law and the prophets. The way of love is hard and few find it, but it leads to life. Life for others and true life for you. The life of Christ in you. The way of love is life. The way of love is life. So in conclusion, let me, let me have a bit of an extended conclusion here to draw this towards some application for us. In conclusion, what are we gonna do with all this? Well, one commentator tells us what some of us are gonna do with it, all of us are gonna do with it. He said, uh, verse 12, the point of Jesus' instruction here is not likely to elicit disagreement so much as various forms of noncompliance. compliance As sinners, our problem with this standard is not that we cannot see the justice of it or that we cannot follow Christ's argument. The problem is a moral one. We don't want to live this way. While at the same time believing that it sure would be swell if everyone else did. As sinners, our problem is a moral one. We don't want to live this way. We just want everyone else to live this way for us. And for our hypocrisy and our selfishness, we must repent. This morning I read from Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and does not lift up his soul to what is false. Friends, none of us come before the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart. We've all been false in the way that we have demanded love from others that we do not give to them. And we must humble ourselves under it and repent of our shallow love. The good news is there is one who ascended the holy hill on our behalf, who had clean hands and a holy heart, and whose way was true and pure in its love, and that is Jesus Christ. And being saved, we are found in him. We go up that holy hill in Jesus Christ so that we can enter into the presence of God, and with the power of Jesus Christ, we can love others. So one response we must have though is we must repent where we have not and do not and are not loving others. But Luther, Martin Luther was very good to help us remember that we are not only sinners but also saints. We have been claimed by God. We have been made his holy ones. That's what saints means and it's one of the Apostle Paul's favorite names for Christians. It means we've been set apart by God to be holy because he has already put his holiness in us through Jesus Christ. So as sinners, our problem with the golden rule is a moral one. We don't want to live this way. We repent of that. Great. As saints, we want to live this out. Is it easy? No. We still have a problem. Now what's our problem? You know what our problem is? Unbelief. Here's the problem. I think loving like this will kill me. And the truth is, it will. It was love that killed our Savior, because love lays down its life. But we don't stay dead, for there is resurrection in Jesus Christ. We don't stay dead, and we will resurrect to a new beginning. We know this from the gospel and yet still it can be hard to fight our unbelief and to love difficult people So what can we cling to? We have the truth of the gospel, we know it actually won't kill us, we can live through this in Jesus Christ, but then what does our faith cling to as we endure loving people who are difficult? And with that, I want to point you back to the beginning of verse 12, and that critical little word, so. There is so much in this little so. We've seen how it connects us back to chapter five, verse 17, and Jesus' whole sermon here, how it bookends it. We've seen more locally how it connects us back up to chapter seven and how we're to relate to people who are different and difficult, but even closer than that, consider the critical connection it makes to the verses directly before in verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then... Who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The faith it takes to live out verse 12 and walk the narrow and difficult path of verse 14 is fueled by the promise in verses 7 through 11 that we have a Father in heaven who cares for us and provides what we need. Ask and it will be given to you. He is the way that we endure in loving others. Because of Christ's saving work on our behalf, we have a Father in heaven who only gives his children what is good for them. Therefore, treat others the way you would like to be treated. Your father's gracious provision for you is the spring of your selfless love. You don't love to get love back. You love because you are loved and supplied for so much. If you experience God as that kind of a father, you can and you will love people like this. Your father gives you everything you need to endure in loving others. And that is the experience that Emma who I shared at the beginning. That's the experience she had. Emma held on to the truth through this terrible marriage for 40-something years that the first thing she needed from God was not saved from her horrible marriage condition, but saved from her own sin. And the second thing she held on to was the knowledge that she does not love this man to get love back. But because God has loved her. Sadly, they eventually were divorced. But eventually, as time went by, well, what happened was Emma kept reaching out to her ex husband. She would send him birthday cards and letters. Why? Because she said she imagined he was lonely. And eventually the Lord used that to soften that hard man's heart and lead this ex-pastor, ex-husband to the saving faith in Jesus Christ he never actually had. And he repented of his sins, believed in Jesus Christ, and asked his family for their forgiveness. Now I share that story for a couple of reasons. One, because we all need inspiring stories. They encourage us but I hesitate sharing that story a little bit because it doesn't always work out that way. She didn't do it to get from her husband. She did it because God had poured so much love into her again and again and again. But I also share that story because she did it for more than 40 years and then still after they were divorced. Which means God calls us sometimes to things that are unimaginable for us. But Emma's story is he provides. He provides. If Jesus is your Savior, then God is your loving and caring Father. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Because God is your Father, because he is more eager to help you than the best human father, And because He is omnipotent and has all things at His disposal, you can live for the good of others and not just for yourself. So, press into the Father, friends. He loves you more deeply and provides more abundantly than you can ever imagine. Loving others will bring you to the end of yourself, but it will never bring you to the end of God. He will always provide the way. For love, the way of love, is life. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, Lord, what you have called us to is beyond us, Lord. Is it not is beyond us? Who can love like this, Lord? Not me. Not us. accept that you've loved us like this and your love is alive in us and your love continues to pour in us, Lord. So God, we find ourselves at the end of this sermon even more needy than we were when we came into it because there is this awesome task of loving others that are difficult set before us and we feel so little for the task, so weak for the task. So we're more needy than we were coming in, and yet we find ourselves more richly supplied for by you than we were when we came in. For you have promised, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. You, our Father, love to give us good things, the things that we need. And so as we seek first your kingdom to love others the way that you have loved us, Lord, may we see you richly supply our need. And may you get all the glory and the praise for the power you provide. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.